Brian Stelter is a journalist and media critic known for his role as the anchor of CNN's Reliable Sources and his insightful analysis of the media industry. He's written several books and earned widespread recognition for his passion and dedication to media journalism. Not bad for a guy who's not yet 40 years old. Brian Stelter, welcome to The Cultural Scavenger. You've, uh, you've been one of my heroes, and uh, I'm just uh, thrilled to have you on the program. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you. I, I, I've long admired uh, what you do, so thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Well, so I guess let's start at the beginning. Uh, tell me, tell our audience how you got started in journalism. Tell me about your background. Um, I don't know why I was so obsessed with media as a child, but uh, but I was. I was obsessed with television. Um, even when I was six or seven years old, I was really interested in television anchors and the newscast. And, um, you know, I, I would try to interact with it myself uh, sometimes, like, on a, on a snowstorm, you know, on a day we had no school, I would go in the backyard, you know, measure the snow, call it into the local TV station. And it was amazing to me when I'd be watching the local news and the, and the TV, uh, the meteorologist would say, oh, and uh, Brian in Damascus reports 10 inches of snow. And, you know, it was like, it was like a magic trick um, that he was saying my name and that yeah. he was using my information. And you were and, hooked. Yeah, that, of course, that wasn't journalism, but it was journalistic. It was, you know, contributing to the news um, in that tiny little way, even at a very young age. And I, I almost like I was pulling on a prank, Andy, because like the, the, the meteorologist didn't know I was a kid or at least didn't know I was that young. So, you know, there was something very early that hooked me about television and about journalism. And uh, when I was 18, I launched a blog about TV news uh, during my first year in college. And, uh, and that really snowballed from there. How, how did you go from being the kid that was, uh, <laughs> was reporting on the snowfall to ending up at CNN? Yeah, I mean, it probably was the blog. Um, I launched this blog, TV Newser, in 2004. Uh, this was at the height of the kind of blogging boom. There were mm -hmm. lots of people setting up their own web blogs, as we used to say, using sites like Google Blogger and WordPress. And it was a very innocent time compared to what we, the kind of internet we have today, oh, uh, yeah. where everyone's shutting each other and trying to trying to tear each other down. Bloggers helped each other out. They linked to each other. There was a real sense of community in that pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, pre-social media era. So TV Newser became pretty popular among uh, anchors and producers and correspondents and executives. I basically had the entire CNN, Fox, MSNBC world reading the site all the time while I was in college. Uh, and that's what attracted the New York Times first to write about me and then to try to hire me. So I went from the blog uh, when I graduated to the Times and I covered TV there. Uh, and then six, seven years later, that's when CNN poached me. But, you know, if, I, if I'm looking back, I'm thinking, you know, the reason why I was on CNN's radar, a reason why I was able to make a name for myself was was really through the blog more than anything else. And, you know, that's the incredible revolution we are living through where anybody can publish, anybody can become a member of the media just by starting a podcast or a blog or a, or a newsletter. Of course, that can also mean people can come in and lie and destroy yeah. um, and sow disinformation, but it, 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 it gives us a power to be very constructive and, and create uh, and that's what I did. You completely circumvented all the, you know, you didn't do local news. You didn't, you didn't come up through the ranks like 
you know, other broadcast journalists do. Yeah, the way I think about it is I, I've always gone through side doors in my life. I've never gone through the front door. I've, I don't think I've ever submitted a resume for a job. Uh, wow. When I was blogging, that's what made the New York Times reach out to me and it made them interested in me. And then, uh, you know, CNN came calling because of my work on the blog and at the Times. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a very, um, it's a, you know, it's a fortuitous in that way. And I, I suppose um, that's the advice I, I share with student journalists today. I say, just start. Just start doing something somewhere. It doesn't guarantee you're going to get noticed. It doesn't guarantee that an employer is going to call, but it gives you a shot. It gives you a side door uh, into a potential job. And um, for me, that that's that's been really important. With with CNN, I was very I was very happy at the Times. It was 2013 when they called. I was very happy at the Times, but they basically called and had me try out on the air for this show, Reliable Sources, uh, which had been hosted by Howard Kurtz. Uh, when Kurtz went to Fox, CNN basically had on-air tryouts, uh, a different person hosting every week. And for me, it was um, uh, it was a surprise, you know, joy to be doing something new, to be trying television in that way. It's nice to have that New York Times credential because that it, it's 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 like working for Disney. You know, people that work for Disney, they never stayed there or very, very few of them stayed there for any length of time, but boy, you have Disney on your resume and it's like, Oh, Disney. And I mm. suspect that it's like, Oh, Brian Stelter, New York times. He's got to be good. I think you're right that the times does, um, you know, certainly provide, um, a lot of credibility and authority. And, you know, that always helped when I was a reporter there and I was calling sources or trying to get a hold of someone or trying to get an email returned, you know, you tend to get an answer or a call back faster when, it's the New York Times calling. Um, and, uh, you know, and that really speaks to how in this media age where a lot of brands have suffered, a lot of local news brands have really taken uh, terrible hits. Oh, big these, time. These big yeah. national brands like the Times are still very strong. You've written extensively about the media's coverage of politics and the uh, newly indicted Trump. So how do you think the media should balance their duty to report on Trump's actions uh, while also being critical of them. Right. I mean, this is, this is, uh, I guess this is what defined my years at CNN. You know, mm -hmm. I arrived at CNN end of 2013. I said, I was there about nine years. I was there of course, before Trump ran for president. But when I look back now, I think, you know, I was, I was, my time was really defined by Trump. And yeah. the biggest story I was covering was clearly uh, Trump and his, uh, war with the truth and his war against the media, because it posed these epic and, and existential questions for the news media. Uh, how do you responsibly report on someone who is a powerful public figure, former president, possibly future president, uh, but also someone who is unable to to sort fact from fiction, unable or unwilling? You know, you never know with, with Trump. Like, is it a, is it a yeah, lie? You gotta or wonder. Actually, believe some of this BS, but. But, you know, and, and those were the kind of debates we had for years and years. I don't know about you, Andy. I feel like memories are starting to fade of what it was like when Trump was in the Oval Office. There's some revisionist history going on that sometimes oh, good Lord, uh, make, makes it time. out to be um, uh, less egregious than it actually was. You know, the the, the tearing at democratic norms, the the destruction that that, that occurred uh, to our body politic was, was intense. And I know it's back in the news to some degree now as... As Trump faces arrest and faces this case in New York, but um, 
uh, I think it's important to make sure memories don't fade and that we we don't lose sight of uh, of, of of how how corrosive some aspects of the Trump presidency were. Now, look, I come at this as a guy who covers media, so you know, I don't I don't have any interesting things or thoughts about his foreign policy or about his you know domestic accomplishments or how he handled the Senate or the Congress. Like I, that's not my bag. My bag is he went out there and misled people on purpose, and he told the country to hate. CNN and hate the New York Times, hate mm. outlets he didn't like. Um, he tried to create an environment where only Trump-approved sources were the ones you should trust, and and that's damaging for any leader to do. So as we as we look at him now, he's, he's once again a big news story, a presidential candidate, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, accused criminal. I think we have to keep all those facts in the frame and not let them fall off the picture or fall off the frame. You know what I mean? Sure. Along those lines, your book hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the dangerous distortion of truth discusses the relationship between Trump and Fox News. So how do you see Fox News's role in shaping public opinion? And do you think they have a responsibility to report the truth? I mean, I do, even if it doesn't align with their political views. And, And look, I think, you know, you and I both know people, journalists that I can say are journalists like Dana Perino, that I don't think she's been tainted by, you know, the the whole Dominion, the voting machine lawsuit. But, you know, there are people there that that do want to report the truth. Yeah, I think about Fox as three different things in one. And they all are in really, dis- they're all uncomfortable together. Like this, this weird, awkward merger between a news operation, which is pretty small, but it exists. There are reporters there who wake yeah. up and they want to report what's true. And then this huge opinion operation, uh, which is trying to win elections for Republicans, trying to advance conservative causes, trying to own the libs. And then there's a third part, which is the Tucker Carlson show. Tucker is out on his own. He is actually separate in my mind and bigger than most of the opinion shows. He's the most most watched guy on the network. He promotes conspiracy theories that even the other shows won't touch, even the other opinion shows. He is um, in many ways more extreme than the rest. So you get Tucker, opinion, and news, and it's incredibly uncomfortable for the journalists who are still there. Who and, and then that is why more and more of them are leaving. Every year, some of those journalists end up leaving Fox. They they feel like they can't take it anymore um, because they feel a responsibility to tell the truth. As you said, they feel a responsibility to the truth and they feel they can't really tell it or they, they feel they're not encouraged. They feel they're not supported. They feel they're not backed up by the company. Um, I think the, the radicalization uh, of Fox mirrors the radicalization of the Republican Party. Um, yeah. And, and as we all know, there are there are many different kinds of Republicans in the United States. There are moderates who 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 do who hate the the path that the party's on. Um, in much the same way, there are moderate Republicans who would love to have reliable news from Fox News. Uh, but 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 that's um, unfortunately the incentives are pushing in a different direction. The incentives are pushing toward uh, a, a kind of um, an alternative reality presented by Fox. That uh, that does not line up with with the facts on the ground. Um, yeah. So that's that's basically why I wrote hoax. I wrote hoax in 2020 uh, because uh, I felt like the only the only book about Trump that had not been written yet was the book about his media addiction and his media compulsion. That was his compulsion with, with Fox. He 
had this twisted relationship. He still does actually with Fox. Um, twisted relationship with Fox where he he both watches and loves, but yeah. also hates and he, he relies on it and depends on it, but then smears it. It's it's convoluted. It's, and it, it, it really is. It's it's very sordid. <laughs> but per the testimony of Rupert Murdoch or or the 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 accounts that you hear, you know, they're just they're giving their viewers what they want to hear. And you know, t- when you were mentioning earlier about moderate Republicans, frankly, they're scared of their constituents. And I, I give you Morgan Griffith, who is my quote unquote representative in, in Congress here. He's uh, he's a smart guy, but, you know, he toes the party line. I think that if he could come clean, he would say, yeah, we need to do this or we need to do that. And we need we need sensible gun legislation, but he can't do it because if he does, then he's not going to get elected. And I think that's, you know, going back to Fox, it's that they're just, they can't piss off their viewers, even if they feel like they should, they just, they're just not going to do it. Yeah, it does come down to that audience relationship. I had sources at Fox say to me, you know, for for my book, they said things like, we feel like we're being held hostage by the Mm -hmm. audience. And I kind of rolled my eyes when they, when they said that, I'm like, really? Like, come on, like, what do you mean by that? But you can see it in the messages that have come out through the Dominion lawsuit against Fox. Dominion, the voting technology company, suing Fox. We all know that this is a blockbuster media law case. And in the text messages and emails that have been uh, obtained through discovery, you can see how scared the Fox stars and executives were. Scared of the audience leaving, scared of offending the audience. And, And in this perverse way, they end up um, catering to the audience by lying, by distorting, by deceiving the audience. I, I thought it was so revealing in, in these emails, that these private emails that became public. Um, some of the executives talked about after Trump lost the election, after Biden won, when voter, GOP voters were really, really upset, didn't want to hear that, that Biden was going to be president, didn't want to hear Trump was a loser. And, and one of the messages among Fox executives said, we need to respect the audience. This is about showing respect to the audience. Yeah. And that phrase is so interesting and euphemistic, to respect yeah. the audience. I know what that should mean. It, it should mean tell the truth. But for yeah. them, respecting the audience meant, meant, meant deceiving the audience, hiding the truth from the audience. And in that, of course, is disrespectful. It is yeah. disrespectful. But it's a it's a statement about where, where we are as a society that this giant profitable television network and and you know, Fox is more than a network. It's an identity for its fans mm-hmm. um, that they would they would deceive the audience and and then claim that's respect. Yeah. So the media landscape clearly has changed dramatically over the past few years with the rise of social media and the decline of news outlets. So how do you think these changes have impacted journalism and what do you see as the future of the news? Well, I think the future of news is all of the above, I, all of the above. I, I, the reason I say that is we live in this um, this era where there's there's more high quality, fantastic journalism than ever before, more accessible than ever before from every corner of the planet. Some of it, much of it is behind paywalls. So you have to subscribe for it, but yeah. it exists. It is out there. You can get it. Uh, you, you can obtain it. You can be better informed, more alerted, more aware than ever before if you if you go out and get it. 
But we're also in this environment where there's more garbage than ever before. There's more dreck and disinformation, and there's more information pollution today than there was yesterday, and there will be more tomorrow. Um, something that you've campaigned about. Uh, yeah. the, the sewer of the internet is is clogged and continuing to get more and more clogged. Now, you know, in this environment, what we need are people like journalists, editors, curators, bloggers to help separate the trash from the treasure. There's so much treasure out there. Um, but but it's hard sometimes to find. And I, I fear that in this AI age, as computers are increasingly going to be writing most of what's on the Internet, it's going to get even harder to separate the trash from the treasure. So that, I think, is the work of media to provide spaces that are fact-checked and, and verified and, and corroborated, or at least, you know, to the best of our knowledge, are, are represent what is true in the world in you know, an environment where the information pollution is only going to get more and more uh, uh, saturated, you know, yeah. I, but. But I think there are pathways forward. I, I think for for young people entering the business, for for folks who are reinventing themselves within the business, there are so many opportunities to be a part of a solution uh, to these problems. Do you use ChatGPT? Speaking of, I've, I've played with it. I've played with Google's Bard. I've played with ChatGPT. Uh, GPT. It's amused me how how they get some little things wrong so easily. Mm-hmm. You know, this this technology is far from perfect even though you hear folks in Silicon Valley swearing it's going to change everything and reinvent the entire world. And there's a version of that that is true. And I can see how as AI is able to code and AI is able to write its own AI, like as these machines get closer to being able to replicate themselves, we're going to be in some very hairy situations and and in some ways very exciting and in some ways very scary. But for the time being, it amuses me that like the, the technology is both it's awe-inspiring one minute, like it's mind-blowing one minute, and then the next minute, like it can't even it can't even do a math problem. It's, right. it's really amusing to me. Yeah, you know, how do you affect, think it's going to affect journalism? I, I think what'll happen is some basic forms of journalism will be automated. Some already are. More and more will be. You know, I'm thinking about the town where I live, where all the property records are probably online somewhere. You know, a AI, a, a machine would probably be able to go through all those documents, summarize them, spit out a news story about them, you know, in a way that a journalist could. That's great. That'll that'll free up a journalist to go do a, a higher value, harder to do story that uh, requires more uh, human interaction and, and more more human touch. Um, but I think in, in general, I saw Ezra Klein write something to this effect that writing may be somewhat less valued or devalued, but editing and curating will be more valued, that there will be more value on the people that can choose what story is most important and can highlight what you should be reading mm-hmm. and pull it out from this, you know, again, overwhelmed amount of information in the world. And that's really interesting to me. And it, it's something that's informed me as I think about my next step post CNN in an environment where, you know, we're not going to increasingly, we're not going to know that something's written by a human or, or a robot in, in that environment, personally, I'd like the human content, please. Like, please give me the human internet. And, and so I'm going to want trusted people, guides, um, curators, you know, to, to help you, to help, you know, what, where to go and what to trust. I mean, look, in some ways I'm describing, what a magazine editor did 50 years ago, a powerful magazine editor or TV producer 50 years ago would choose a few stories to put in print or to put on the show. And those judgment calls will will be, I think, even more important, more important than ever. That power will be more important in an era of AI where there's so many options. Yeah. Well, and and I think it's going to be a useful tool. And I use this podcast and this interview 
this was an experiment for me because I had chat GPT for Mac. And so I plugged in, what would Andy Parker ask Brian Stelter in a podcast interview? And it came up with these questions. And I'm like, damn, this is pretty good. <laughs> It's it's he's, it's a journalist for crying out loud. The the questions that I'm asking, I've tweaked it somewhat, but they're really they're good questions and very relevant for you and me. And it it brings in this next question. You've been critical of how some new news organizations cover mass shootings. Good God, you know, and it's like every freaking day we have another one, particularly in terms of how they give attention to the shooter. How do you think the media should approach covering these tragedies? And what responsibility do they have to the victims and their families? Well, I think the responsibility question is profound because newsrooms, in my experience, don't think as much about that as they should. I think individual reporters do. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're on the way to a tragedy, you're on the way to the scene of something. And, you know, at least in my experience, what you're thinking is don't do any harm. Like, don't don't make yeah. don't make the worst thing in the world even worse. Right. But newsrooms as a whole, as a collective, the media as a collective in its behavior, like a like a swarm of bees or something um, like a collective mind or something ends up engaging in really damaging behavior, um, ends up swarming the scene, ends up uh, publicizing things that may or may not even end up being true. There ends up, I find oftentimes when it comes to mass shootings, a narrative gets set, gets baked really early um, before we really know if it's true or not. And it, look, this is a problem in, in, in rolling live news coverage at large. The problem is that there's most interest when there's least facts. There's like the interest is highest when the information qu- quotient is lowest. And by the time the information quotient is high and we actually know what the story is, People moved on and there's not attention, there's not interest. Partly that's just us as a species and how our brains are wired. And like, that's, it's hard to fight against. But I remember feeling that way in in the wake of Allison's murder. I remember feeling that way about uh, WDBJ. I remember trying to write follow-ups, trying to do stories months later about the station and about the, the, um, the, the, you know, the surviving members of the staff Mm -hmm. and, and what they were processing. I remember going down and interviewing, um, uh, the, the the woman that was being interviewed by your daughter, the, the survivor yeah. of the shooter, wanting to profile her months later, you know, in order to follow up because those follow ups, those longer term stories, you know, to me, that's where the real the actual journalism happens. You know, like that's yeah. where actual journalism exists and not just spectacle yeah. or or people, you know, I, I, mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you have more coherent thoughts about this than I do, but it frustrates me. Whether whether it's an, a, an event like a mass shooting or other breaking news event, that the interest is always highest when the the knowledge is lowest, and yeah. that feels like a, a constant problem to me. But that but that gets away from your 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 other question, which is about the responsibility toward the victims and families. I think there are some great examples of you know, and there always are of compassionate journalism and careful producing and superb editing, and you know, and and this, that is always true. But then we live in a media age where the barrier to entry is very low, as we talked about, where everyone is a member of the media, where standards are very uneven and unevenly enforced. And 
you know, you might have one newsroom and, and one set of journalists who go through ethics training refreshers every year and go to courses about uh, how mm-hmm. to deal with sensitive stories and, and how to interview people that are hurting. And But then you'll have another team that doesn't have any of that training, that, that's never thought about these issues, that that is just, you know, kind of is winging it. And therein lies the problem, uh, a very hard one to solve, um, in my view, which is... Uh, you know, the, there's the best of the best, and then there's the worst of the worst, all converging onto the same story, all trying to publish while people are still interested. Allison's first station, you know, the, the inside joke at the station was, if it bleeds, it leads. And, you know, she never subscribed to that. She was always very gracious. And I have to say, my experience with the uh, the journalism community, I mean, they've always been very gracious and very kind and very respectful I never had an issue, and I I recall in the immediate aftermath of Allison's murder. I I, I mean I, I lived on CNN for the most part, and I'll never forget ever being interviewed by Poppy Harlow. It was the first time I had a monitor, so I could see her, and I just remember at at one point in in the interview, I said, "Poppy, she was going to be you. Allison was going to be you." And, and she Poppy broke down. Broke down in tears. Broke down yeah. in tears. I mean, it was like it affected me in a profound way. And she represents the the same kind of experience that I've had mm-hmm. with the vast majority of, of, of journalists. I mean, it's uh, sure. that's uh, good. That's heartening to hear that there's it is humanity. The humanity does come through. Oh, I've the, the passion yeah. does come through. Yeah, it, it does. The reason that happened to a degree is that Allison was she was one of you guys. I think that's. One reason why I've been treated with such compassion and with kindness. Yeah, I mean, I remember I remember stepping off set at one point that terrible day and, and going in my office and closing the door and crying. I had to just get it out somewhere yeah. that wasn't on camera, you know. Yeah, um, it did affect the business, the TV in the news industry in a in a very personal way. We we saw that again recently in in Orlando with a with a journalist who was just yeah waiting to do his live shot who was attacked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And killed, and, and I think what happens is, I'm I'm not gonna, you know, I don't, I don't, I I wouldn't write an op-ed with exactly what law I want to see passed to reduce the number of gun deaths in this country. Uh, I I don't know what that answer is. What I do know is that we're all suffering as a country, and I think journalists in recent years have been more open about to give voice to the public's concerns. I mean, that's what when an anchor is on the air and and calling out the lack of action, it's not because that anchor, uh, you know, wants a in my view, it's not because that anchor wants an exact bill to be passed that Democrats or Republicans want. No, it's about giving voice to the public's fears and and, and concerns. And that to me is is critical for the media to do. And they have done it. And I I challenged them again early on. I I remember doing whatever news conference I was doing. And I said, don't let this issue go away. Don't let this be a three-day cycle and then, okay, we're on to whatever it is next. Right. You know, unfortunately, right. you know, they don't have to let it be just a three-day because, hell, we've got a mass shooting every day or every other day. So it's it's constantly in the forefront. And, and, and thankfully, the media has done a good job as, it, you know, keeping the drumbeat going and, and keeping the issue alive. And that's ultimately, that's how we're going to, prevail at, at some point. So mm. you've you've covered a wide range of topics through your career, including 
media ethics, politics, media technology. What's been your most challenging assignment to date and how did you approach it? Hmm. Um, that's, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that before. Yeah, that was, that was, thank you, chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> They're um, smart. What comes to mind actually, and it's partly inspired by our conversation just now, what comes to mind is a, is, is a, is a, is a type of assignment. And that type of assignment that I always found, I've always found challenging, but rewarding is uh, when you are covering um, the, the loss, when you're covering loss, mm. when you're covering, I'm thinking about the day Anthony Bourdain died and he was a CNNer yeah. and we, we announced his death to the world. I announced his death to the world. Um, it's the most, this sounds so strange. It's the most viewed article I've ever re- written was his obituary. And you know, wow. you never want your most popular story to be someone's obituary. You know, that's yeah. not a pride. <laughs> it's a, it, it's a strange feeling to, to, to have. Um, but whether it was Bourdain or um, whether it was, uh, you know, going on the air because some 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 celebrity I never met, you know, but some Hollywood celebrity had died and the whole country is feeling that pain or uh, whether it's a breaking news event like, like the one, you know, that, that awful day uh, in, 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 um, in in Roanoke with your daughter. I, I what I feel the reason it's a challenging type of story is you want to meet the moment and you want to. Uh, do right by the people involved. You want to do right. You know, let, let me just take you know the Bourdain example. So so you know you want to do right by uh, his family and his friends and his colleagues and in that case my colleagues. You you want to you want to do the person justice. I, sure. I remember feeling this with Kobe Bryant uh, when his helicopter went down, and you know that was a, a major American news event, and we were live on the air, and I. You know, you always know the reins are, again, it's like what I said earlier, the, the interest is highest when the information is lowest. You know the ratings are really high in the beginning. You want to say the right things. You want to you want to have the right tone. You want to be respectful, uh, but inaccurate, but and thorough and all of that. And I, I, I guess to me, that's what comes to my mind. That's the, the topic that comes to my mind because the stakes are very clear. And in some cases, you know, the family's watching or, you know, the friends are yeah. watching and you want to do right by the people you're talking about. Sometimes in journalism, it, it can feel distant and unrelatable. And, you know, if, if you're talking about Trump or Biden, they're not watching what you're saying on TV. But mm. when you're covering something that's that's more intimate, that's about loss, about grief, that I think is is the area that comes to my mind that it's particularly challenging because uh, you, you want to do right by everyone who's watching and everyone who's involved. You know, you've interviewed all kinds of high-profile individuals throughout your career, including journalists, politicians, celebrities. Who's been yeah. your favorite? Who's been your favorite interviewee, and why? It was an out-of-body experience to interview Oprah because she's Oprah. Oh, you know, yeah. Anybody who's on a, anybody only has one first name, you know, and you know them. That's that's an out-of-body experience. And um, it's kind of like this one, Stelter. That's you uh, know, <laughs> maybe in maybe in twenty years, but that's that's the one that comes to mind. Your exit from CNN, I know there's been a lot of scrambling there. Oh, you saved the saved the most dramatic for last. Yeah, that's right. You know, exactly. Uh, I know there's, you know, was it related to your reporting, your show, or was it simply a an attempt at better ratings? I, you know, again, they they've got some issues going on there. So, <laughs> what, what, how did that? You know, I was shocked. I was like, what? Oh. You got to be kidding. 
Oh, well, uh, well, thank you. I, the truth is, I don't know. Uh, You're an why institution I, for crying out loud. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Um, the truth is, I don't know why reliable sources was canceled. That's, that's the truth. And, uh, uh, but I know why it was not canceled. I know that the show was popular, you know, so I know they, they didn't cancel it because it had poor ratings because it was one of the most popular shows on the weekend on CNN. Right. Yeah. And I know they didn't cancel it because it was expensive because, it was a pretty sh- cheap show to produce. It had yeah. a small staff and, and a great staff. So, you know, I'm left with a big question mark. Okay, well, if those weren't the reasons, then what was it? The The reason I was told was they just didn't want to have an hour about the media anymore. They just didn't want to be in that business anymore. And I don't really buy that. Um, but but I think, you know, that they're entitled to that view. Management, you know, whenever you know, new, new people come in, buy a company, they can do whatever they want. Mm. Uh Every television show gets canceled eventually. That's the way I feel. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> every, you know, and, and every host is very replaceable. That's the other truth about television. Um, but uh, but I think it's more important than ever to be looking inward and be, be scrutinizing the media. I, I think every network should have an hour covering the media. Um, and it was great that CNN did for 30 years. Uh, you know, we, we're in an environment that desperately calls for media literacy, for, for more for more understanding of how the news works and does not work. And it, so, you know, I think they were they, they were heading in the wrong direction by, by removing that hour. Um, good news is that at CNN, um, my old colleague Oliver Darcy continues to be aggressively covering the media. He has a nightly newsletter that he and I used to do together. He, he's on the air all the time. So is analyst Sarah Fisher and others. So I, I'm seeing a lot of strong coverage from CNN of the media, of, for example, of the, the Fox Dominion lawsuit. Sure. I think that's really important, um, you know. Uh, but but with regards to, to to me, you know, I don't really know, and I'm I'm I like that. I'm 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 at peace with that. I I find it um, as I look back, you know, I was as I said, I was there about nine years. It feels like something I completed. You know, you ever have that in life where you you, you feel like you completed it, even if you 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 would have kept going if you could have. Um, it feels complete to me. It feels like I finished whatever that chapter was. Mm-hmm. The truth is, Andy, I was starting to, um, I was starting to repeat myself a little bit on TV. I, I feel like I was, you know, I, I feel like I was starting to get a little repetitive. Maybe I was starting to, to, to do some of the same things. Um, probably not in a way any viewer would have noticed, but I, I was certainly starting to, to be a little less, um, uh, excited about getting there every Sunday morning. I still, I still loved it. I still love doing it, but, but, you know, I was starting to, when I look back, I, I think of this as a blessing in disguise because I was probably ready for a change anyway. Right. So what is that next gig? You know, when, what are you, <laughs> and what are you most excited to cover these days going um, forward? You know, the same day uh, that I left CNN, I, I moved out to a farm in New Jersey. We we had we had bought this farmhouse with this big barn and these pastures, and we hadn't done anything with it. And so we decided to move out, move the family out there full time. So now my kids are in school, and now I'm just in stay-at-home dad slash farm life. Um, we don't have many animals yet, but you know, I've, I've got some work to do. So it was, it was again a blessing in disguise. Like my whole life changed on the same day, and my place and all, my office and all that. And so now that's the mode I'm in. But I am starting to write stories uh, a couple of times a week. I've been writing for the Atlantic and Vanity Fair and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, that's that's the kind of the rhythm I like right now when the kids are in school for the day, and then. Um, 
you know, uh, I, I figure I'll have to get more serious about figuring out what's next, um, you know, in the coming months. Is that yeah. a, does that dodge your question enough? <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, you can, you can, you know, if you need to, uh, to populate the farm, I don't know if you saw, there's the, the Felix, the dog and his, and his friend, the goat cinnamon. Did you see that story? No. Oh no. my God. I got to send that to you. It's, it's like this, this goat that loves this dog. They were, and, and it, they, the two of them showed up in, at a shelter in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they tried to separate the goat and the and the dog, and then the goat was just bleeding. I mean, it was like it's it was really quite heartwarming and <laughs> wow. charming. So, so they're wow. looking for there's they're looking for somebody to adopt the goat and the dog to, because they come as a package. So, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, That's a thought. I'll check that out. That's yeah, funny. Yeah. So, uh, so finally. Uh, Barbara and I established two now fully endowed scholarships uh, at JMU in Allison's name mm, uh, for, for journalism student, students. Yeah, it's it was the fastest growing scholarship in the, in the history of, of James Madison University. And with that in mind, and you alluded to it earlier, you talked to, to students. What advice do you give to aspiring journalists and those who want to pursue a career in the media? I think... Um... Number one, it's to start now. You know, don't wait until you graduate. Don't wait until you have a you know, what you know seems like a real full time job. Just start. Just go ahead and get started. There's there's no such thing as an aspiring journalist. You either are or you're not. Yeah. You know, there's, there should be no in between. Just just go and do it. Is is the advice I I, I share. And, and find that sign door if you can. Yeah, fine. And because twenty years ago that was that was a blog for me, but now it's probably a Substack newsletter, a YouTube channel, a TikTok page. Um, it could still be a blog. Uh, and that's great. I love them. Uh, it could be contributing to a, to a local news outlet that needs the help. I mean, that's one of the things I've thought about uh, in, in my in my happy stay at home dad phase was just. Maybe I should freelance for the local paper because they need stories. Yeah, uh, it would be fun. It'd be fun for me to do. So, you know, I think that's that's the answer. It's it's get started and 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 don't don't come up with excuses to wait. Go ahead and and, and do it, and uh, and know that that that's not going to guarantee you uh, a side door, a front door, a back door way, but it's gonna it's gonna give you a better shot. It's gonna give you a better chance at getting those jobs. And the other answer is just to look for um, look for what. Well, the way I put it is. Um, go make the thing that you wish existed, you know, go, go look for what's missing, look for the void in the marketplace, whether it's, you know, coverage of a topic or a place or a person or, or, or a theme, you know, and go and do that. You know, that, that could be the newsletter. That could be the blog. That could be the podcast is uh, whatever's missing that something maybe you really care about, but you don't think is reflected in the media, go be the solution. And so that's, that's what I, that's what I tell students. Great advice. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you on the program, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on uh, your next gig. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Great talking with you, Brian. Take care, buddy. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>